As we continue our sermon series through Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, uh, we've come to this third and the last section of the book. Um, and Paul is using this section to address some of the rebellious individuals as well as some of the false teachers uh, that existed there in the church at Corinth and addressing some of their uh, philosophies and, and, and so forth. And so he does this by giving us a look into what they thought and what the issues and topics were that they were dealing with. And so as we walk through these last four chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to consider six different aspects of Paul's ministry. And so today we're going to look at number one, and over the next five weeks we'll look at the others. Uh, but the six different aspects are first his ministry ideology, then his ministry ambition, his ministry credentials, um, and then a chronicle of his ministry, kind of telling us what he's gone through in his ministry, and then looking at some of the obstacles and opportunities in his ministry. And then finally, we'll close this series out talking about the impact of Paul's ministry. Now, Paul wrote this portion of the letter because the integrity of his ministry was in question. Uh, it was under attack. And so he starts this section of the letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 by defending his ministry. Now, when we think about this concept of an ideology, an ideology is a belief system that is comprehensive enough to be used to structure or to run a society. In other words, every people group in the world has a particular ideology that controls who they are and how they act. Um, whether that's uh, from a nationality or from a tribal community, or maybe it might be an affinity group. And I hope you're familiar with that term, but people who gather together because they like the same stuff, okay? Uh, they have their own ideology, whether it's an affinity group or it could be a professional organization or association. Every group of people has an ideology that serves as a guideline for how they function within that group and how they determine their priorities for that group. And so this morning, as we look at Paul's ministry ideology, that's what we're looking for. What are these principles? How do we function as ministers of the gospel? Now, a few examples of ideologies that stand opposed to one another, some things that you've probably heard of before, uh, are some things such as democracy or autocracy. All right, very different ideologies. Or maybe capitalism versus socialism. Or liberalism versus conservatism. Or traditionalism versus progressivism. You kind of get the idea, right? I mean, there are all kinds of ideologies out there. And frankly, as I shared some of those ideologies, my guess is, is that you identified with some and were repulsed by the others. Um, and I'm not here to try to convince you that any one of these ideologies is better than the other. That is not my purpose or my goal whatsoever. Today, I want us to think about Paul's ministry ideology. In other words, why did Paul do the things that he did? 
It's a good question. What principles guided him in his words? What principles guided his behavior day by day? Why did these, or why, why was he motivated to write these things to the church at Corinth? What were the issues that the church was facing that were so egregious or appalling to Paul that he felt like he had to address them? Why does Paul feel the need to defend himself and to defend his ministry? So these are all questions that we can begin to answer when we understand what his ministry ideology it was. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to look in 2 Corinthians. We'll begin reading in chapter 10 and we'll read verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspects us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now I'm going to stop there this morning and if you are following along in your recharge book or even if you look in your uh, bulletin under the sermon notes, you'll notice that I was supposed to go through verse 11 this morning. Um, and so as I was preparing this week, um, verses 1 and 2 grew in my preparation. And then 3 and 4, I thought, well, I'll shorten that so I can, I can you know. It grew. And by the time I got to the end of verse 6, I had more notes than I normally want. And so I said, okay, I'm going to just have to stop. So we're going to pick up with verses 7 through 11 next week as we look at the rest of chapter 10, Lord willing. Um, and if it doesn't happen, then we'll figure that out as well. But you'll notice there is a little bit of difference there in, in what we read and what we're going to focus on this morning. Now before I jump into our text exploring its truths this morning, I think it is important for us to remember that every follower of Christ is also a minister for Christ. Every follower of Christ is also a minister for Christ. Now, a few months back, I preached a sermon titled, Validating Our Call to Ministry. Uh, and if you're interested in listening to that sermon or listening to it again, there's a link to it in the YouVersion uh, interactive notes, or you can find it just by searching on our website, templerogers.org, or Google search. The title and my name will bring it up. So, um, but in that sermon of validating our call to the ministry, um, I shared several truths from Scripture that confirm the assertion that every follower of Christ is also a minister for Christ. 
In that sermon, I talked about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, which that tells us that God gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. In other words, there are leaders in the church that help all of us to become the ministers of the gospel that God wants each one of us to be. My job is not only to be a minister, but my job is to be an equipper of you as you also are ministers. Equipping them to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, Paul explained this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which uh, we have already studied. But he said this in verses 18 and 19. He said, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. As ministers of the gospel, each one of us have a responsibility to communicate that message of reconciliation. Each one of us have that ministry, that responsibility of ministry thrust upon us we've been entrusted with God's message that he wants a personal relationship with me and with you this is our responsibility folks it is our calling we are his ministers in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 going back a little further in this letter the Bible says our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant so over and over again in the new testament the bible is telling us that we collectively all of us are ministers of the gospel we have this responsibility so since we're all ministers of the gospel of reconciliation let's take a few moments today to see what that ought to look like in our day-to-day -day lives what are we supposed to do as God's ministers? What principles should guide our words and should guide our behaviors as we walk through uh, life day by day? What does God expect from us as his ministers? Well, the first thing that I notice is that in the ministry, we must exhibit weakness. <laughs> We must exhibit meekness, not weakness. Yeah, if I mess that up every time, it's really going to be bad. So. so in the ministry, we must exhibit meekness, not weakness. The attitude that we display when dealing with others is an attitude of meekness or an attitude of gentleness of spirit. And I, I don't know if you've thought about this, but in all of the teaching that Jesus taught about one of the main times that he described the kind of person he was not like who he was prophetically the light of the world and all of that but when he described the kind of person he was in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29 he said take this yoke upon 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, what did he say? Gentle and lowly in heart. That word gentle is the same word for meekness. The word lowly there is the word for humility. So what Jesus is literally saying is, I am a meek and humble person in my heart. Is it or is it not our call to become more like Christ? If it's our call and our responsibility to become more like Christ, then we too must become gentle and lowly, meek and humble. In his expository dictionary, W.E. Vine says that this word meekness has a fuller and deeper significance than what you find in like non-biblical Greek texts. He explains that it consists in not only a person's outward behavior and his relationships with others, but first and foremost, this concept of meekness is dealing with a person's relationship with God. Now, W.E. Vines passed away over 70 years ago, uh, but I love the, the language he used to describe this meekness. He said that it is an inwrought grace of the soul. Hmm. An inwrought grace of the soul. He further explains that this concept is not easily expressed in English, which if you know other languages, you understand that sometimes things are easier to say in one language than in another, right? Um, or sometimes it's way more difficult uh, to say uh, in one language or another. If I want to tell you that I'm a believer, uh, and that's pretty easy in, in English, but if I want to tell you that uh, in Tagalog, uh, I would have to say, Pananam palatayako. Uh, uh, and pananam palataya is the word for believer. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's hard to express certain things in, when you translate. That's what happens here. Because the problem is, is in English, this concept of meekness or this concept of gentleness also carries with it connotations that do not exist in the Greek language. You say, if I... Speak of someone as being a gentle soul. In English, that means they're weak, doesn't it? That's what it means. There, there's a connotation of weakness that goes along with meekness. There's a connotation of weakness and a lack of courage. But folks, the Greek does not have that built into its meaning in the language. When he says that I am gentle and lowly he's not saying I am weak and frail he is saying that he has a gentleness of spirit in his heart and a humility of spirit in his heart in the words of W.E. Vine he says it must be clearly understood therefore that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it's because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had infinite resources of God at his command. Is that weakness? Absolutely not. 
So meekness, I've always heard it defined as power under control. Um, although I didn't find that in any of my expository dictionaries. But it's still, I think, a good definition. Because it's, it does not include this idea of weakness. So when we display meekness in our Christian walk, what we're doing is we are displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Now we've talked about the fruit of the Spirit many, many times, even though I've never preached through the book of Galatians. But in Galatians 5, and 23, what does it say? It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The word gentleness there is the word for meekness. The fruit of the Spirit is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through me. And so the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through me brings about meekness. That's what this verse is teaching us. But notice that Paul is appealing not only for them to be meek, but also gentle. It says, uh, in meekness and gentleness, in verse 1, that's the way he is entreating them or approaching them, in meekness and gentleness. This is his ideology. It's the way he thinks, the principles that guide his behaviors, the principles that guide his words. And so in meekness and gentleness, he is approaching them, appealing to them. Now the concept behind the word meekness is referring more, I think I messed that up, gentleness is referring more to, no, let me back up. So meekness and gentleness. Gentleness is, is uh, referring here uh, to the way a person thinks. It's more about their, their temperament. Whereas the concept behind the other is referring more to the way someone deals with someone else. All right? So in meekness, you're talking about your temperament. In gentleness, you're talking about the way you're dealing with others. I hope I didn't mess that up too much. Uh, it's been referred to as a sweet reasonableness. Have you ever met someone who is unreasonable? Okay. This is not that. <laughs> this is a person who is a, just a very reasonable, level-headed, easy person to deal with. A sweet reasonableness. In other words, it's about attitudes as well as actions. We must have the gentle and lowly attitude of Christ as well as the gentleness when we are interacting with others. Now last week I quoted a man named Dane Ortland. He is the one who wrote the ESV expository commentary uh, for the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, he also wrote a book that's titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And in that book, he explores Matthew 11, which is where Jesus said, uh, For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Uh, in order to discover why Jesus describes himself in that way. You'll be glad to know that this book by Ortland is on my 2023 reading list. 
Um, I'm hoping to learn more about how to be this kind of leader, a gentle and lowly leader. Well, the church is different from any other organization or corporation in existence today. I know we have a lot of leaders in our church. You lead out in the business that you work for, or maybe the school that you teach in, or, or maybe, you know, whatever, whatever. We have a lot of leaders here in this church. But when we talk about leadership in the church, it doesn't look like anything else in the world. The interesting thing about the church is that we as a body, in, in a congregational church such as we uh, function in here, we as a body are the decision makers. And none of the decision makers are the boss. You see, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5 makes that abundantly clear. If it wasn't clear already in 4, he makes it abundantly clear in chapter 5. He, Jesus Christ, is the head of the church. Not the pastors, not the deacons, and not the loudest person at the business meeting. Jesus is the head of the church. We are all members of his body. Each of us with a specific function within the body, but none of us the head. Richard L. Platt shared a story in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. I wanted to share this story with you. He said this. He said, I was only a young child when I sat terrified in a church pew. It was a congregational meeting. A business meeting, as they called it. And the men of the church were shouting back and forth at one another over some controversial decision that had been made. One man stood out from the rest of the congregation of several thousand there. He was an older man and had a long white beard. He looked just like Santa Claus. He said, and he had always been more than kind to me. So my attention was riveted as he pointed his finger at the pastor and said, shouting at the top of his voice, who died and made you boss? Steve, you shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> I am... So thankful that we have never had a business meeting like that one here in my nine years at Temple. I don't know if you've ever been in a business meeting like that, the one that was just described, but I can assure you of one thing, absolutely. God is not glorified in a business meeting like that. He is not glorified when his people act this way because he's called us to be gentle and lowly, meek and humble. Now, if I'm being very honest and transparent with you today, in my depraved and sinful self, I can perform the part of a harsh brute quite well. Okay? That's, that's who I am in my sinfulness, and I am aware of that, and that's why I'm reading books like 
Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Um, if I let my sinful self be in control, um, I will say and do whatever I want or need to say or do in order to be able to get my way in a situation. But folks, that's not how God wants us to live. And it's definitely not how God wants us to lead and to minister. Which, by the way, just a side note, in that sermon back from November, we talked very clearly about that word minister means to serve. To serve. Now that doesn't mean we should allow people to use us as a doormat. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. The situation in Corinth was such that Paul had to rebuke them for some of the things that were happening there. And this rebuke was in that harsh letter. Remember when we talked about that last fall? The harsh letter that he had sent to them that was lost in time, not included in the biblical canon. I think it's because Paul had to get really, really specific about what they were doing and what they were dealing with and telling them how they needed to fix this. And God didn't want the specificity there in Scripture because he knew we'd go to seed on it. You know what I'm saying? And so it was lost. But he refers to that letter here in 2 Corinthians. He wrote that letter to rebuke them so that he could correct the issue that, that, that it addressed before he arrived there in the city of Corinth. And that way he would not have to confront them face to face. He was trying to fix the problem in such a way to gently, humbly lead them to the decision that they needed to do. He was handling this situation with meekness and with gentleness. Folks, in the ministry, we must exhibit meekness, not weakness. Second thing I want us to notice this morning is that in the ministry, we must fight battles, not people. We must fight battles, not people. Folks, as we interact with one another with meekness and gentleness, we need to remember that people are not the enemy. They may look like the enemy right now, but they are not the enemy. We need to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. We are in a battle with spiritual forces in heavenly places, Ephesians 6 tells us. And thankfully, there in Ephesians 6, Paul details the battle that we have at our disposal, those, the battle, the weapons that we have at our disposal to use in this battle, in this waging of spiritual warfare. He talks about in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the, the shoes that are, are shod with the readiness of the gospel, being ready to present the gospel, uh, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then the sword of the Spirit, which he describes as the Word of God. 
This is our offensive weapon right here. The Word of God. But you know, it's not just those six things that he describes as the armor of God. There are two other aspects that are mentioned in the verses that follow. It's not quite the same thing. But immediately following this list, he says, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. Folks, prayer is a weapon to be used in spiritual warfare. The second thing that he talks about is praying that we would boldly proclaim the gospel. So not only should we be ready to share the gospel, but a a weapon in our warfare against spiritual powers in the heavenly places is to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Let people know, share that truth so that they can come and have that relationship with God, that they can be reconciled to God. That is the ministry of reconciliation that has been entrusted to us. And so all these things found in Ephesians 6, these are the weapons that verse 4 in our text says have divine power. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. So what are the battles that God wants us to fight in this war? If we're not fighting people, then what are we fighting? It tells us right there in verse 4. These weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. God wants us to use these weapons to destroy strongholds in our lives. And if I can stop for just a moment, I will tell you that that word is what hijacked the whole sermon and caused me to only preach half of it today. Um, This concept of strongholds in our life is one that we can't just pass by quickly. Neil Anderson says that a stronghold is a belief or habitual pattern of thinking that is not consistent with what God tells us is true. It's a belief or a pattern of thinking that is not consistent with what God says is true. In other words, we're lying to ourselves or we're believing the lie that's being fed to us by others. Anderson goes on to say, strongholds can have two faces. When we know that we sh- what we should do, but don't seem to be able to do it. And when we know we shouldn't do something, but don't seem to be able to stop it. Sounds like Romans chapter 7 to me, doesn't it? The things I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. The things that I, I want to do, I don't do. Those are strongholds is what Brother Anderson is saying. Strongholds are established in several different ways. Uh, Three ways that I'm going to talk about this morning. Because I think it's important for us to understand their origin so that we can understand how to defeat these things in our lives. One way that strongholds are established is through our environment. A second way is through a traumatic experience. And then the third way is by giving in to temptation, a continual giving in to temptation. 
Now, the values and beliefs from the world that we live in or the values and beliefs that are, are taught in our home or that are practiced at work or that we experience at school, all of those things come together and have the potential to build up strongholds in our lives. If the values that we are applying to our lives do not teach the truth of God, then it's making a way, a, a foothold into our hearts for Satan to build up a stronghold in our lives. We call them strongholds. As theologians, we call them strongholds. Um, but psychologists might call them something else. They call them defense mechanisms. Have you heard that term? They're ways of thinking and acting that have become deeply ingrained in our mind and in our lives. And so it's something that we do just as a defense. It's something that we do that goes against what God's word says. And so it has become a stronghold in our lives. That's based off of our environment. But, you know, I mentioned traumatic events can also cause strongholds in our heart. Um, they can create these because of their intensity. You know, things such as a divorce can cause a stronghold or a rape or a death in the family. Traumatic events that even though the event itself is not producing the stronghold, it's the lie that we believe as a result of that traumatic event that can build up that stronghold. The woman whose husband left her for a younger and newer model tells herself that I'm no good. I'm worthless. No one loves me. I'm all alone. The young girl who after being violated thinks, I brought this onto myself. It's my fault that this has happened. The one who's lost a loved one. It should have been me. Why does God hate me so much to take away this person that I love so much? Folks, they're all lies. But they're lies that we believe. It's not the lie, or it's not the trauma, but it's the lie that we believe as a result of that traumatic experience that will build strongholds in our lives. The third way I mention is that strongholds are built up by continually giving in to temptation. Tempting thoughts that are not dealt with will lead immediately on to actions. Repeating the action will lead to a habit. And exercising the habit long enough 
will produce a stronghold. If you don't believe this, if you think, well, that's just something you're saying, Brother Wade, read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, because it talks about when, don't say you're ever tempted by God, but when you are tempted, you're drawn away by your lust and your desires. And when that gives birth, it becomes sin. Folks, that is the way sin works. It starts in the mind, but I'm getting ahead of myself, so I need to not go too far there. It's a temptation, and temptations will become actions, and actions will become habits, and habits then become strongholds. It all starts with temptation. And as we head down that rabbit hole, frankly, it's hard to get back out. That's why it's so important that we remember what Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We go back to that previous letter he wrote, chapter 10, verse 13. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. That's the truth of God's word. The question is, is whether or not we choose to believe it. God always gives us a way of escape. The question is, will we take that escape route or will we ignore that escape route? I want to I invite you um, to take a moment right now. This is not the invitation. Musicians, you do not need to come up just yet. But I want us to take a moment right now to ask God to reveal to you what strongholds that you may have built up in your life. Because I think everyone's situation is different. And so the way I'm going to ask you to do that is I'm going to ask you to take a minute and to pray the prayer that is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And if you don't know these verses, they're on the screen. But pray to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. God, show me what's wrong in my heart. So we're going to take a moment. Would you pray this prayer and ask God to speak to your heart?
So if God has revealed a stronghold in your life today, revealed it in your mind this morning, what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Now the next portion of our text addresses this, but frankly people, if these are truly strongholds in your mind, you will need to do a whole lot more than listen to a few minutes of a sermon about it to destroy or demolish the strongholds that exist. It's not enough just to sit here and say, oh, well, I feel better for now, and then walk away and never think about it again. It's not the way a stronghold works. A stronghold exists because it's not easy to demolish. It's a fortress. We have some great resources available that we can introduce you to to help you experience true and lasting freedom in Christ. All I need you to do is to let me know. And you may not want to talk to me face to face and say, Brother Wade, I'm dealing with a stronghold in my life. And you know what? You may want, not want to ever tell me what that stronghold is. I can provide you with resources without knowing what it is, okay? But if you will let us know, text me, email me, you have a sign-in form, write a little note on there. Nobody sees that except for the church staff. Uh, just hand me a handwritten note. I'm okay with that. Don't tell me after services. I'll never remember, okay? Um, Somehow let me know that this is something you want to move forward and work on in your life. I'll be glad to get you resources to help in this area. Well, let's look at the, the third thing. In the ministry, we said that we must embrace... No? What was the first one? That we must... Exhibit meekness, not weakness. We said that we must fight battles, not people. Finally, we must embrace obedience, not disobedience. Now, if you're looking on the screen or if you're looking in the YouVersion Bible app at the sermon, uh, you'll see the last two uh, points of the sermon uh, up there. Just wanted to let you know that I, I really did prepare uh, I just know that the, the mind can only uh, take in what the seat can endure. And so uh, we're going to stop this morning after point three because I'm already over my normal amount of time to this point. So we must embrace obedience, not disobedience. And folks, obedience starts in the mind. Obedience starts in the mind. Notice the key words here in verse 5. It talks about arguments, opinions, it talks about knowledge and our thoughts. All of these things are things that relate to the mind or our thinking, our thoughts. We've talked about this a little before, but folks, the human brain is remarkable. 
There is nothing else like the human brain anywhere in the world. There is no artificial intelligence that comes close. They're trying very difficult, you know, trying very hard to, to make that happen, but nothing compares to the human brain. According to the National Institute of Health, the brain is the most complex part of the human body. This three-pound organ is the seat of intelligence, the interpreter of the senses, the initiator of body movement, and the controller of behavior. The brain is the source of all the qualities that define our humanity. If it weren't for the brain inside my head, we would be like any other animal. God created our brain in such an amazing way. It went on and said the brain is the crown jewel of the human body. The th crazy thing about the brain is that the brain knows what you want better than you do. The brain understands what you want better than you do. Even when you don't realize what it's want, what, that is what you want, the brain knows it. You see, the concepts and the thoughts that you think about most often are subconsciously ranked by your brain. The things you think about most often are ranked by your brain. You don't even realize it's happening. You know, it's like your brain's pinning this to the top of your feed. It's like it's making a list of your favorites so you can get back to it quickly and easily. Now, this is both amazing and quite disturbing at the same time. Your brain deciphers the desires of your heart, and then it prioritizes those things, and it protects those things. It's building those strongholds around the things that are important. The things that you are telling it, it is important, whether you realize you're telling it or not. So it will build up walls around it to keep it from losing any information. Those are the strongholds. But, you know, uh, it will also build a neurological superhighway. Or you might call it a shortcut, if you will, to that stronghold so that you can gain access to that information quickly. How many of you on your computers, on your, on your uh, desktop, you have a little icon there that if you want to go to something that's buried somewhere deep down in your hard drive, you can just click on that one thing and boom, it cuts through all the, all the other levels and it's a shortcut to get there. That's what your brain does for you. Whatever you are thinking about regularly, it makes a shortcut, a neurological superhighway, if you will. And folks, when it comes to strongholds, your brain will either work for you or it will work against you. It all depends on what you feed. If you're feeding your flesh, then your brain is going to work against you in your walk for the spirit. But if you're feeding your spirit, 
And that's what subconsciously your brain is saying, this is the most important thing in this person's life. Then it's going to build that as a stronghold in your mind. Does that make sense? The things that we deal with and the strongholds that we demolish in our lives that we build up according to the truth of God's word, our brains will then form a new stronghold according to the truth rather than the lies that we've been telling ourselves. And then that's when it becomes easy to obey God. We've got to embrace obedience rather than disobedience. So how can we demolish the strongholds that Satan has built up in our minds? Well, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how can we destroy arguments and opinions? How can we destroy these things that go against the knowledge of God? Folks, it's through the process of sanctification. It is transformation of my life day by day. A process that begins by capturing every errant thought and bringing that thought into obedience to Christ. But folks, it's not enough just to fight the war in our minds. The victories must spill out into every aspect of our life. Otherwise, it's not really a victory. Say, oh, I've been fighting those urges in my mind, but my body's still doing all these things. That's not victory. We're not taking hold and claiming the truth of God's word that he will give us an escape from those temptations. We're losing the war. So obedience starts in the mind, but obedience requires action on our part. It's not enough to just fight the war in our mind. You you see, folks, this is a war against self-exaltation. It tells us that we need to destroy every lofty opinion. You know what? If I have an opinion, I'm pretty certain that I'm right. And if you want to tell me I'm wrong, that's okay. You can be wrong about that. Right? It's saying we need to destroy every lofty opinion. We need to take captive every thought that is in disobedience to Christ. We need to be ready to punish every disobedience. Folks, this passage is challenging us. To destroy the strongholds that sin has in our lives. But it's not enough to just identify these bastions of sin and deception. God is calling us to destroy them and experience the freedom that he wants us to have in him. So this morning I want to ask you again. What lies are you telling yourself To justify your attitude and to justify your actions. What lies are you listening to from others or that you're telling yourself? Folks, these are strongholds in your mind that need to be 
demolished. Now, you may be thinking that you don't have a problem with this. If that's you, well, while I share a few examples of strongholds, I want to challenge you to once again pray this prayer from Psalm 139. If you think you don't have an issue with this, praise the Lord, but ask him to give you confirmation, okay? Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything wrong within me. Pray that prayer. Now, for the rest of us, it may just be a question of you're asking yourself, where do I begin? You know, I'm looking into the depths of the, and recesses of my mind, and, and all I see are castles built all over the place. What, which one do I battle against first? If that's where you are, um, I, I feel you, okay? The lies you've been telling yourself are so deep and complex that oftentimes we don't know up from down and right from wrong. And so to help you along in this process of identifying strongholds in your life, I want to share just some examples of what some strongholds might look like. You see, strongholds originate from a lie that you're being told or that you're telling yourself. And then those lies develop into core beliefs. Those lies become who we are, or who we believe we are, is a better way of saying that. So I don't know if you'll see yourself in any of these examples, but hopefully it will spur your mind to think, what might be a stronghold in my mind? Example number one, the lie would be, I'm useless, I'm a failure. All this, it's all my fault. Do you identify with that? Let me share the truth of God's word to you. The truth is, is that you are loved. You are a child of God. And he does not hold you guilty for the ways that you have failed him. But he offers you a relationship with him. He loves you. Another example. The lie would be. Food gives me lasting comfort that I cannot experience in any other way. When I indulge in my favorite foods. I feel great. Well. The truth is that gratifying the desires of the flesh ultimately brings misery. It may feel good for a season, but ultimately it brings misery. Only God, through his love and compassion, can provide us with lasting comfort. That's the truth of God's word. Example number three. The lie might be, you don't understand. I am not able to resist the temptation to sin sexually. I'm not able to resist my compulsion to look at pornography. 
The truth is, God provides us with a way of escape every single time you are facing temptation. Every single time He provides that way of escape. And if we live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, the Bible tells us we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the truth that we need to be telling ourselves to destroy that stronghold. Last one. The lie would be this. I'm abandoned. I'm forgotten. There's nobody in this world that cares about me. Nobody likes me. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is is that God loves you. And there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from his love. Romans 8, right at the end of the chapter. If you're struggling with this, go home and read about how neither depth nor height nor, nor anything else can separate us. That's the short version. God loves you. And he promises us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Folks, these are just a few examples of what a stronghold might look like. Hopefully to help you in this process of identifying. Identifying what we need to do in to identify these strongholds. Well, I'm out of time. See now why I skipped the last two points? I want to challenge you folks. I want to challenge you to identify two or maybe even three strongholds that you're dealing with right now. Identify the lie that you've been believing. Write it down. Make a note in your phone Whatever you have to do to write it, to identify it, just do it. And then do it again. Because I'm sure there's more than just one stronghold that's holding you today. Once you've identified these strongholds, I pray that you'll commit to God today. That you will engage in the battle for your mind. It is war. And you're going to have to use those weapons of war that he tells us are available to us that have divine power. Wielding the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to cut out any sinful desires from your flesh. Destroying every argument and every lofty opinion that we use to justify our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. Capturing every wicked and self-absorbed thought and bringing it into the obedience of Christ. Disciplining disciplining yourself for every disobedience. Developing your spiritual life daily by reading his word, by prayer, and by other spiritual disciplines. This is what God wants you to embrace. Will you Commit today to engage in this battle for your mind. Identify the strongholds and then start the hard work 
of demolishing those things in your heart and in your mind. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would take the ramblings of this old man and apply them to the heart and minds of each individual here today. Father, forgive me for the strongholds that I have allowed to grow up in my mind. Lord, help me to do the hard work of destroying these. Father, I just pray that each one here would ask of you to search their hearts, to show them the way that they have grieved your spirit, Lord. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.